Take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter number 9. I'd appreciate it. I quarreled with about three messages to preach this week, and uh, this is where I ended up. And part of me wanted to finish the uh, series kind of in a definite way on the church by going to Matthew chapter 28 and preaching and the great task of the church to go into all the world and to preach the gospel and essentially disciple the nations. Now, discipleship should be just um, an integral part of um, any congregation. That if it's not, um, I don't care how accurate our doctrinal statement is, um, theology is not theology until it becomes practical, um, until it affects, until it's, it is absorbed, and until it overwhelms you such that um, you must act as a representative of God, not only in character, but also in task. Um, then I thought it's Easter. I need to preach a resurrection sermon. So I quarreled in combining those two, and uh, starting at the beginning of Matthew 8, and just the natural implications of the resurrection. Um, then I heard a, a uh, phenomenal sermon on March chapter 9, and I planned on coming back here anyway. And I believe that there's some great implications as to the resurrection, um, particularly in this passage. So I'm not abandoning Resurrection Sunday, but I hope that by the end of it you will see um, the implications of the Lord here as He's transfigured, and how that is even a, a glimpse into a precursor um, of what the resurrection would be like. So I do plan to make some implication and application to that towards the end. So if you will, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word out of reverence for it. We're going to take our reading out of Mark chapter number 9, uh, 1 through 13. You read these words, and he said to them, Surely I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. As they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen, till the Son of Man had, been, had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come. And they did to him whatever they wished as it is written of him. Let's pray. Father, would you bless the reading of your word. Father, would you um, take the word of God. Father, and just sober the reality in our own hearts, Father, that it is the word of God. That it's not the product of men. It's not the insights of... Um, human beings, it's not great philosophy, it's not logical, it's not reasonable, Father, 
um, in and of itself, it's um, or as an ultimate end, Father, but it's, it's the very Word of God. Father, and as the psalmist says, we should receive it as so. Father, that we should not only receive it as so, but we should love it. We should not only see the great value as being more precious than gold, but it should be sweet to the taste this morning as we partake of it as, as honey to a honeycomb is to our tongue. Father, we revel in your glory. We revel in your majesty. We revel in the exaltation of your Son. Father, would you help us to worship him this morning? Father, would you help me to worship him? Father, would you just exalt my heart to his presence, his place, Father, um, such that it would, I would be taken to high and holy places, but it would be, I would be brought so low in the presence of the Savior. Father, would you do that for every person that's here? God, would you allow us for just a few moments to stare our hearts and just uh, focus our minds completely and totally upon you, Father? Would you help us to remove the distractions, Lord? Um, Father, would you remove the distractions? Would you help us to be mindful, Father, that we are in the presence of Christ? Father, that, um, and that we are to worship him. Father, would you help us to cultivate an environment, Father, that is conducive to the worship of the King? Father, whatever that may be, would you help us, Father, not to um, cultivate a, an environment of chaos, but, but one where, Father, we can just totally give our hearts and minds, Father, to the, to the hearing, the reading, and the um, preaching of God's Word. Not that I have anything to say, Father, but that you have much to say, Father, um, through the man. So God, would you allow me to be that mouthpiece this morning that just heralds Christ and Christ alone, Father, that preaches the gospel with clarity. Um, and may you take this fallible attempt, Father, um, this, um, this sinful man and, and um, do something fa infallible and eternal with it. So Father, go with us now to your word and do things that only the Spirit of God can. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Bless you. Again, we return to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 9 and verse number 1. And interestingly enough, just want to say a couple of comments about verse number 1 and then we're going to move on. Um, verse number 1 is mind-boggling to me. Um, if you were to read Christians throughout the ages, and you were to read ten of them, you would get ten different interpretations as to what this means. Um, he says in verse number one, and he said to them, as assuredly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. The powerful presence of God's kingdom manifests itself. There is a prophecy given by, our, given by our Lord here that there would be some who would not taste death until they see that kingdom present with power. Um, there's a lot of different perspectives on this particular verse, and I'll give you just a few of them. The secular, uh, skeptical, uh, humanist type of um, atheistic perspective is that Jesus simply got it wrong. The idea here is, is that some of those who were under the sound of the preaching of God's Word and under Jesus' ministry, um, some of them would not taste death, which is a euphemism <clears throat> um, for dying. Of course, they would not... Um, leave this world without first seeing the kingdom of God present with power. And the skeptic, the atheist, and the secular humanist argue simply 
that um, Jesus tried very well, but he just simply got it wrong. And there's even some Christians out there um, in a very liberal context who argue the very same thing. Uh, Jesus kind of got raptured up in his own teaching and and he kind of uh, gave this prophecy, pushed the envelope with Rome because he actually believed it. They murdered him, and um, and everybody died um, without seeing that. Why? Because uh, a lot of people look at this like they're talking about, like he's talking about the second coming. Um, I don't believe here he's speaking of the second coming. Um, simply because of that, I believe that this was fulfilled in the time of, in the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here are some options. Um, the powerful presence of God's kingdom manifests itself in a lot of ways, and that's why we could come up with a lot of um, possibilities. And the context could lead that he's speaking of the death of Christ. Um, the, the veil being torn and rent and the power of the kingdom coming um, with the, as Jesus rises with victory over death, and that's very much a possibility. Some argue that he's speaking of the ascension to the right hand of God the Father. And that, um, and particularly when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, we see um, the power of God and the kingdom of God in a way that the world has never seen it before. And that's um, definitely true as well. Some argue that the, uh, the, the kingdom of power in, in, in its presence is the dynamic growth of the church. Um, after the coming of the Spirit of God falling upon the, the men of God in, in Acts chapter 2, we see a dynamic growth of the church which is not comparable, um, possibly even in human history since that time, 3,000, 5,000. Um, the, the world is going to be reached through the gospel as a result of it. Some argue that um, this is speaking of a destruction of the temple in AD 70 when the Lord Jesus Christ comes with his holy angels in power and judgment. Um, and there's a lot of people, and it's becoming more popular to take that position. Um, some believe that it's speaking of the second coming of Christ. Again, I'm not, I, I don't believe that that's necessarily what's happening here. Um, but that, that, there's definitely those tones to that. If you were to go to 2 Peter... Um, chapter number one, um, you would read the words of Peter himself who was present on this occasion. Verse number 16, he says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father the honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And you definitely see kind of some the, the tenor of the second coming there. So I can see why some would go that direction. Peter associates the Mount of Transfiguration in this account here with the glory and the majesty of the power of God's kingdom and the coming of our Savior at the end of the age. Um, but that would in some sense mean that this prophecy was not fulfilled. Unless for some they take the immediate context, seeing that, 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 that this is fulfilled six days later in verse number 2. It says, Now after six days Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart from themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And that the power of the kingdom that's being spoken of here actually comes um, in a small form, in an infant form, in an inaugural form, in the glory and the power of the kingdom as Jesus transfigures himself. And uh, the glory of the kingdom and the presence of the power is seen there. Um, and th to be honest with you, all of these possibilities I can somewhat sympathize with. Um, even the one with the destruction of the temple in AD 70, I think that there's a possibility. Um, and I think particularly in other passages that that's exactly what he's talking about, but I'm not so sure about this one. Because it seems obscure if that's the case. It seems kind of out of, the, out of place. Um, it seems like in Matthew chapter number eight or Mark chapter eight, whenever we left off, if you weren't with us, that the Lord Jesus Christ is teaching them 
uh, of his death. I mean, you, you receive that great statement by Peter, who says, you know, who, by Jesus asked the question, who do, who do men say that I am? Some say I'm Elijah, some say I'm a prophet, this and that. Who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ. And then eventually, following from that, flows a conversation, and Jesus needs to rebuke Peter because Peter rebukes Jesus for the idea of suffering. And then in verse number 38, you see, For whosoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. And then you see that verse, And he said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that some of you are still standing, or that are standing here who will not see, taste death till they see the kingdom of, of God present with power. And then you see the transfiguration. You see this account that we're going to work through. And then following that, you see him deal once again with the suffering of the Savior. They, don't, they still don't get it. Peter doesn't get it. And we'll get to that in just a few moments. Um, the, the disciples are still um, enamored by the ideal of a suffering servant and a suffering Savior, which will culminate in resurrection. So I, I, I'm, I, I lean more towards that this is, uh, has no doubt that the power of God comes in and manifests glory in the transfiguration in a way that they can foretaste the power of that kingdom in a, in a microcosmic display of what was to come. Um, but I also think that this passage speaks more of the coming of the kingdom in, in, in Christ's procurement of the salvation of His people. That through the suffering, the death, and the resurrection, and ultimately the ascension, that there were some of those there that would see the power of God coming in that glory as the fulfillment, I believe, of Daniel chapter 7 uh, happens um, through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and ascension, that He's given a kingdom of every nation, tribe, and tongue, and people of which there will be no end. And that that's exactly what they would, they would see. Um, but nevertheless, I'll leave that up to you theologians to um, uh, discuss after, after the sermon. And I'll be happy to do that more, to, more with you. Uh, but let's move on to verse number 2. It says, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and He was transfigured with them. And here we see just such a glorious account of the Lord Jesus Christ, and He's going to reveal Himself in such a way that no one else in the world will see until He gives up the ghost and, and He's resurrected, and nobody prior to this has ever seen. Six days earlier again, Jesus poses the question, Who do you say that I am? And Jesus explains the suffering and the death of the Messiah. Peter rebukes Jesus and Jesus rebukes Peter and they have that interchange. And then Jesus gives a description of what following Him would look like. And the disciples, it's clear, have a, a, a different understanding of what the kingdom should look like. So Jesus delineates on the teaching of what it looks like to take up the cross, to follow Him, to deny themselves, and to follow Jesus. Then we... Um, uh, immediately move in Mark into this passage of Scripture. And the passage needs to be understood, but it needs to be understood in light of the Old Testament. It drips with Old Testament allusions and parallels. In fact, the very concept of Jesus taking three disciples up on a mountain, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, six, uh, six days later is not an accident. It's not an irre irrelevant detail. Actually, in the book of Mark, this is the only time other than um, at the death of Christ where he gives any, um, any descriptive terms regarding a quantity of days. And so the question would be, why does Mark do it here? Why did he do it there? Because there, there's something that, that he wants to grip your attention with. In the Exodus, particularly in, in Exodus chapter 24, um, Moses... The Old Testament mediator takes up the mountain with him 
Three named men. And then he takes another, Joshua, even up further six days um, after for God to speak with them. That high mountains in the Old Testament always have played a pivotal part in God's redemptive history. Exodus 20 and Exodus 24 uh, with Moses. And then it's going gonna, it's gonna to make sense in just a moment, but particularly with Elijah. 1 Kings 17, 1 Kings 18, and on 1 Kings 19, you find two different mountains, Mount Carmel and Mount Horeb, where God speaks to Elijah in despair. God gives the Word of God and speaks the Word of God to the nation through Moses as a great mediator. And Elijah, um, he does and performs great miracles as a great prophet would. Um, so you see kind of this Old Testament... Um, uh, um, it grows out of this Old Testament symbols and types and pictures of the nation and of Christ. And it says after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John as kind of his inner core. And he leads them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. Let's just jump right in. This is the transfiguration of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Um, what do we mean by transfigure? Transfigure. It comes from the, uh, the, 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 the original term is actually where we get our term uh, metamorphosis from. Uh, it's, it's literally metamorpho. Um, to transfigure um, in, in, those, in, in that language carries the same idea of a, of a, of a caterpillar um, transforming into something um, that, that is its ultimate end or its, its, its essence. It is not to change um, in the sense of DNA. A caterpillar and a butterfly are no different in its essence. It simply becomes what it is and what it was meant to be. The DNA, the internal nature of it does not change. And that's exactly what he's speaking of here. It speaks of a transformation. Literally, you could um, term it that. Uh, a few other times it's used in the New Testament. Um, and it always speaks of an interchange. And it's always an interchange. And, and always in regards to us. For example, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says that as a consequence of beholding the glory of the Lord, we were metamorphosis. We were transformed. We were transfigured from glory to glory. That it gives this idea of the inner man of the believer being transformed into what um, he now is. But it's not really a, a change of essence at that point. Why? Because we already are in Christ and we are already made of Christ and we're given an eternal substance when we come to Him. We're just becoming what we are supposed to be and revealing that inner uh, perfection as Christ has, has saved us and that eternal glory that, that now lives and abides in us in Christ. But here, he doesn't speak of that in the, in, in the same way as our Lord. As our Lord, it's an, it's an external change. Um, it's literally like a caterpillar becoming a beautiful butterfly. For a brief moment on the mount, the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the veil of humanity is lifted. His true essence is now allowed to shine through. The glory which was always there in His deity surfaces to the top and bursts forth. One commentator says that he slipped back into his previous glory. And it was also a look into his future glory. That Jesus' glory that existed in his pre-incarnate state or before he became flesh, the glory which he shared with the Father prior to the incarnation is in some sense as fully revealed as it ever has been in this world to these three men. 
That, 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 that now they see the fullness of the glory of the Son of God. They see what Jesus was referring to in some sense in John 17 when He prays that the, the, the glory that He had before the world began would be restored to Him. That glory that He shared with the Father. It's a metamorphosis in the, in the humanity of our Lord that underwent a change whereby it was fitted even at that moment for eternal glory. In the presence of the glorification of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In other words, what happened here was, was, was what should have happened to Adam had he obeyed, happened to Christ. That even Christ in His human nature, though He was sinless, in that nature had to be fitted for a glory. That was part of the condescension, the, 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 the humbling, the becoming of a servant. That, that through His obedience and death of the cross that He would undergo the wrath of God such that, that He would be exalted to the right hand of God the Father and He would be given a, 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 an eternal glory is what Philippians um, and Ephesians argue. But in other words, Christ's human nature, even though sinless, was a real human nature and had to be fitted for eternal glory just as much as Adam's body and our body needs to be fitted for eternal glory. That was part of the humility of Christ. It's reminiscent of Moses, this passage. After he had been in the presence of God, Moses was saturated such with the glory of God as he's hidden in the cleft of the rock, such that um, it, 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 it even he reflects that glory, but it's more than that. Moses comes down off of the mountain in Exodus and there's a light that shines from his face, but it's just a reflection of being in the presence of God. Here, he is the greater than Moses. And we'll get to that in just a few moments. But in Deuteronomy chapter number 18, Moses um, prophesies of one that is greater than himself and a greater prophet, one like unto Moses, a mediator, one who would speak the word of God and you are to hear him. And that's exactly, this is in some sense a fulfillment of that. The prophet stands up. God the Father says, listen to him, that he's the greater than, than Moses. But this glory doesn't proceed from the Father, it proceeds from the Son. It's not a reflective glory. It's as if He pulls back the veil of His human flesh and the light source is Him. It's not, it's not the Father. He's not reflecting from the Spirit. Um, the, the, the glory of God the Son is now manifest, exceedingly white. Don't you love that? It says in verse number 3 that His clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. That there's a purity in which the world has never seen that exists within the Son and He pulls back the veil and He shows these feeble, frail, sinful men the glory of the Son. And don't you love the details? It's just, it's, just, it's, just, it's like a child who's writing here. You know? He doesn't know what else to write. Like, you know, I, I remember when my, my mother used to launder the, the laundry and she used to get things white as we were out playing all day long. And, and Jesus is, you know, whenever he's white, it doesn't even compare to mama, you know? Um, in that sense, it's, it's an eyewitness account and, and he tries to relate it to something earthy so that you'll understand that there is a, a purity here in which, which they had never seen before. If you were to go to Matthew chapter 17 or Luke chapter 9, you would see the parallel accounts of that. And in Matthew chapter number 17, you see him a little bit different. It's not, it's not only his clothes that shines, but his face. It says that his face shines forth like a lightning um, is the idea. That something comes from the sun that they had never seen before. A purity, a, a, a fire a, 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 a shining in which would blind, such that, that it says that he was afraid. 
Peter, it says here in just a moment that in verse number six, for they were greatly afraid. If you were to actually go to Matthew's account, though, um, it says that they fell on their faces in awe and reverence. That there was something that happened. And if you were to go to Matthew's account, Luke's account, you would see this idea like they went up on the mountain. And it actually says in Matthew's account that they were sleeping and they woke up and He was shining forth um, like, the, like the noonday sun. Like, the, like, like his, his, everything about Him was, was so pure and like burnished brass. It, shi- it shone forth in such a way um, that they were greatly afraid and fell on their faces um, in, in worship. To give you an idea of maybe what they saw, Take you to Revelation chapter 1. Our brother Mark read that this morning and part of it was for that reason. That very reason. That in Revelation number, chapter number 1, we see the revelation of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, John writes the revelation for the per- particular purpose of revealing Jesus Christ and Christ alone in such a way that maybe they had never seen before. And John is, um, you could say John is a lucky man or you could just say that John is somewhat of an unlucky man, um, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, because John is there present at the transfiguration, but also John is there present in Revelation chapter number 1. And he gets to see um, the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that um, no other man um, gets to see Him. But you see a lot of parallels of the glory um, of the Son in Revelation chapter um, number 1. But for just a moment, maybe we could just, um, before we read Revelation chapter number 1, talk about what is the glory of Christ. What is the glory of Christ? And let me just say, I'm going to offer you a couple definitions of what the glory of Christ is. And you may have a, 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 a desire to go home and be a good Berean, and I encourage that. You may want a hundred verses to go with it. Um, and I'm just going to tell you, I fall short on this. We're talking about high things here. We're talking about things that are too great for men to understand. So you could have a man stand up and give an accurate representation and definition, but then you could have 15 other men that stand up and give a very accurate and biblical and spirit-filled declaration and definition of what the glory of Christ is, and it would still be insufficient, though all accurate. Volumes have been written of the glories of Christ and the majesties of the Son of God. And there is somewhat in Mark chapter 9 and in Revelation chapter number 1 and all throughout the Scriptures, there's this insufficiency of man to exalt Christ to what He needs to be exalted and what He deserves and to exhaust the glories of Christ and to even explain what that glory is, yet we try. We labor to show you Christ this morning in some way that you might see His glory. Although at the end of it, after the service, you say Christ was present with us. Can you explain it? And you're like, you're like Peter, I don't know. <laughs> you know you're like John who tries, who, who, who labors hard to tell you a little bit of what, 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 the, what the presence of Christ was. But at the end of the day, you're still like, a, you know, like my mom couldn't do as good as that. You know? Like it's false. We're like, we're like children. Um, trying to explain something that is too high for us. And God condescends in His language and gives us a little bit of the Word of God here to, to kind of teach us a little bit about Himself. Yet it's, 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 it's so much greater, greater than that. So my, my, my goal this morning is that you would just glory in the resurrected Christ. And that that's the way you're actually, 2 Corinthians 3.18, that's actually how you're changed. You absorb the glory of Christ as it emanates from Him. That the glory of Christ, as one writer writes, and this isn't my definition, I don't even know if I could write a definition. The radiance of the perfections of the humanity and the deity of Christ's person and His work. 
It's the radiance of the perfections of the humanity and deity of Christ and His person and His work. Another writer writes, the, 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 the glory of Christ or the glory of God is the manifested beauty of His holiness. It's the beauty of God on display. Psalm chapter 96 and verse number 6 says, Honor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Give to the Lord, O families of the people, give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and a come into His court to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. There's this joy and this fear and this, this happiness and this awe and this trembling and this love for Christ and, and, His, and His holiness and, and beauty and glory almost seem interchangeable such that, 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 that they are used interchangeably. That the glory of Christ is almost uh, synonymous with the holiness of Christ. And that the, the, the display of that is His glory. It is... It is the, the holiness on display is the glory of God. You, you know, go to the most beautiful place you can find. You know, whether it's a mountaintop or it's, uh, it's, it's the beach. You know, some people hate the beach. I love the beach. I love everything about it. I love the weather. I love the water. I love watching the kids enjoy it. Uh, my favorite part, though, is like waking up early or going to bed late and seeing the sun and just and it rise or it set and just the beautiful scene. And even the only thing that makes it better is the image bearers of God as they play before me and I just see the glory of Christ. But the sun bursts forth over the horizon and brings life to everything that is natural that it touches. The same and probably more vividly happens with the mountains. You know, you wake up and it's, and it's the sun comes out and it just brings life to all things. And when the sun bursts forth, life bursts forth. And the scene is just, you, just, you can't explain it. You, try to, you, you may try to paint it and it just still falls short. You may try to tell somebody about it and it's just something that they, they have to see. It's just beautiful. Like that's glory. It's the radiance of the sun. It's the, that, that's the sun's glory. It's of the same substance of the sun. The, the, the rays that come forth, um, they, they are the sun. They're not anything less than the sun. They're the same substance as the sun. But they're also a product of the sun, which reveals something about the sun's essential nature. The, the, the sun, it's the sun meeting with us as its rays radiate towards us and we receive the sun. But there, there's a sense in which you'll never know what the sun is like. There's no samples ever going to be taken of the sun. You know, there's not going to be any space trips to the sun. And if there are, there won't be any returns. You know, Because of the magnificence and the power and the, and the glory of the sun, yet, yet it's mediated to us in a small form that, that gives us life and brings beauty and life to, to all things. God knows that you're nothing like Him. So what does He do? He communicates that to you how? Through glory. He's a spirit. He's invisible. He's everywhere and yet He's nowhere to be seen. He's, he, he doesn't have to come to you. He doesn't have to show you anything. He doesn't have to display Himself. Yet He does. How? Through glory. It's the manifested beauty of His holiness. It's the part of Him that we can partake of. We can, we can see. We can, in a sense, touch. We can hold. We can taste. and Taste and see that the Lord is good, the Scripture says. And it's amazing that in Exodus, when Moses begs God to see His glory, what does he do? He says, um, okay, I'm behind you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to give you a little taste of it. And he says, I will make my goodness pass by you. 
That when you taste the goodness of God, you, you, you experience the glory of God. He's, he, he partake, you partake with Him and He extends to you something in a kind and a, and a gracious way that He doesn't have to. In goodness. You now we talk about goodness like it's some kind of kind and mild character trait of Jesus that makes Him relatable. Listen, there's nothing relatable about God. Um, unless He condescends and comes down to where we are and shows us His glory. He's not relatable. That's why He's terrifying. He's beautiful, yes, but in, a, in an awful kind of, of way. And that's why the angels in all of their purity in, in Isaiah chapter number 6, without any blemish, still have to cover themselves with their six wings. And why Isaiah falls down like a dead man and says, Woe unto me, I'm a man of unclean lips. If they can't praise you, how in the world can these lips praise you? You know? Yet God condescends and extends to us a little bit of that, that glory, that, that holiness, that manifest display of His character and of His, his nature. And that, that's what the glory is. And again, um, don't, don't, you can quote me with that all day long, but it's inexhaustible and it falls short. And I don't know how to tell you how glorious Christ is outside of that. Where do we behold the glory of Christ? The Scripture teaches us that it's in the Gospel. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. Um, as, as, as it uh, launches off of the pad of that 3.18 that we read a few moments ago. He says, But even if our gospel be veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the glory, or the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Why is it important that we see the glory of Christ? Again, 2 Corinthians 3.18, because without it we will never be transformed. With an unveiled face we behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. That it is imperative that we um, as a church display the glory of Christ in some way, in the way, in the means that God has given us in the gospel message and in the character of our Lord because that's when the light shines forth to a lost and a dying world. You want to fulfill Matthew 28, 18-20. Um, then glorify, that's what it means, glorify Christ. Glorify Him. Isaiah ultimately it culminates in that. He knows that he needs to go. You know, who will go for me? Whom shall I send? He says, me. Terrified. <laughs> and in awe. But have you ever thought about what that means? Represent me. Like what you just saw. That's what you're representative of. You ever think about that? We use that as an evangelistic, mission-minded, to take the world to the, you know, take the gospel to the world. But he's at the end of that, it's like, who's going now? You saw that. Who, now, who's going to represent me? Who's going to be holy like that? Who's going to be pure like that? You know, whose life is going to constitute such character and that's going to radiate the glory of Christ? You know, one of the things within the Reformed camp that it just it irritates me anymore is this this overuse of soli deo gloria. I love it. And it's born out of the Reformation and born out of the Word of God, but we use to the glory of God alone on some things that don't glorify Him at all. You know? Like take that in that context. Like to glorify God is to emanate the character and the radiance and the, and, and the purity and the holiness of such that makes the angels 
It is to totally humble yourself in submission in such a way that you assume the character of Christ, even though it's joyful yet terrible, and that, 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 that it goes against the very grain of who you are. So you must, um, you must obey the gospel message, repent, believe, and deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Him. So when I say I do it to the glory of God, is that what I mean? Soli Deo Gloria. It's more than just a, 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 a text message. It's more than just a, a little address at the end of it. Like in that letter and that message that you wrote or that, that thing that you did, um, was it actually to the glory of God? Was it, was, it, was, it, was, it, was it pure? Was it holy? Was it righteous? Was it for Him and for Him alone? Were you, were you humbled at His presence in such a way that you, 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 it commended you to, 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 to assume the very character and nature of Christ which goes against everything that you are and everything that you were and everything that you were born with? That's what John, that's what Peter, that's what James saw. It's the glory of His person. Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 12. So then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band in His head. And His hair were white like wool and as white as snow. And His eyes were like a flame of fire. This is your Savior. This is Christ's person. This is the Father's Son. He's the Son of Man. Son of Man is one of our Lord's favorite titles for Himself. Sometimes I think we use it inappropriately. Um, but I think, again, if you think on Old Testament prophecy, it's just dripping with Old Testament imagery. Daniel chapter number 7 um, is a messianic prophecy of the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, verse number 13, you read these words. I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought Him near before Him and then to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom the one which will not be destroyed. That the, 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 the title Son of Man is dripping with messianic um, uh, uh, flavor if you will. The Old Testament is looking towards one who would come and that they would be the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. No wonder they killed Him. Jesus told the religious leaders as they asked Him who He was in Mark chapters 14 and 62. He says, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. Psalm 110. And He will make His enemies His footstool. Psalm 110. In that moment against those religious leaders, He tells them in essence that He is the Son of Man. He is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It's almost like Joseph who stands and, and tells his brother and his father a dream. You know, and they bow down before Him in the fields and as the stars and they look at Him and they say, Who are you? <laughs> you know, Born of a carpenter in some sense. So what do they do? They set their hearts and affections to kill Joseph. In a similar way, Jesus Christ reveals that He is the Son of Man, the Son of God, this One who would come in human form, condescend, take upon Himself the form of a servant. He stands before religious leaders and reveals Himself in His glory to them through the very Word of God. And what do they do? They hate Him for it. And they, were, they, they essentially murder Him. They gather together to play games with Him. They put a crown upon His head. They cover his face. 
They play games. They rip him apart with a cat of nine tails. They do all sorts of things to this man in Revelation chapter number 1. He reveals His glory and the natural inclination of a man is to destroy it. Why? Because it's too bright. It's too different. It's too other than that He is the Son of Man. He is God Himself. He is the One to whom all the Old Testament looks toward. He is the One to whom all the New Testament preaches. He is the Son of Man. He is the great High Priest. You see His glory um, represented in the high priestly nature of Jesus Christ. It says that He was clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and across the chest a golden sash. In Exodus 25 you see that it describes a priest in a temple that would tend to the lampstand, trimming the wick, supplying the oil. Why? That the lamps, that the light would continue to shine brightly. John in Revelation chapter 1 sees the exalted heavenly risen Christ in relationship to His church on the earth. And that His present benefits of being present among His people and being in the midst of His people is a means of upholding her. Of making her shine brighter than she would ever shine alone by herself. And that if she had any shine in and of herself, it would pale in comparison to where it would be defined as darkness even though it shines as bright as it did. That our righteousness, even though turned righteousness from a man's perception, is, is, is filthy rags. Thus we walk around with our lights held high without Christ, not, not realizing or understanding that that is the very definition of darkness in comparison to God Himself. That, we are a, that, 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 but that in Christ we are a city that is set upon a hill. That in Christ we are a candle upon a candlestick. And what gives us light? What makes us bright? It's Christ in our midst. That's what John is saying. John is saying that, that Christ stands in the middle of His churches. That He has His ministers in His hand. And that He feeds, that, that, that He trims the wicks, and that, that he, he, he fuels with the oil, and that He's the source of the flame, not us. That Christ here is seen as our great high priest, not only as our, our mediator, but also as our, our sustainer. Not only as our sacrifice, but as our sanctification. Not only He who saves us, but He who keeps us. He who has gone before us, makes satisfaction for our sins by His own blood, but now intercedes for us at the right hand of God the Father. That He is Almighty God. His glory is seen in the fact that He's Almighty God. I love Daniel. Daniel chapter number 7. If you were to return there, you don't, you don't necessarily need to. In verse number 9, you read these words. I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was as white as snow and the hair of His head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. And its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousands stood before him. And the court was seated and the books were open. And then he goes into the prophecy that we read, read earlier. But he says that the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as, as snow and his hair and his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. But it's interesting you come to Revelation chapter 1 and what does John see? John sees the sun. But it's almost the exact same language. Verse number 14, His head and His hair were white as wool, as white as snow, and His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass as it was refined in a furnace, and His voice as the sound of many, many waters. 
That Daniel sees the Ancient of Days with hair like wool. John sees the Ancient or the, the Son of God, Christ Himself, the Messian, the fulfillment of, of Messianic prophecy, the Messiah Himself is the same substance as the Father, such that He can apply the risen Christ the same character as the Father Himself. Jesus Christ is equal with the Father. That His glory is seen in His not only His humanity, but also in His deity. And the fact that he's a righteous judge. Verse number 14 is his eyes were like a flaming fire. Descriptive of his coming judge. His eyes pierce through everything. He is present with all. He is here this morning. And he sees through all the pretenses of men. Those eyes discern the motives, the intentions, and the desires of the heart. They burn with perfect justice. Those eyes know. You may hide this morning in a flow of people and in the multitude of an Easter celebration. But the idea is, is that no man, no woman, no child hides from God. Jesus' feet are like furnished bronze. The ideas of a purity of metal, the idea is holiness, it's perfect justice, it's from the top of his head, from his eyes, to, 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 to from, his, from the, the whiteness of his, uh, the wool, the, the hair, to the, to the tips of his toes, he is completely perfect. He is truth embodied. And when he pronounces a judgment upon man or a judgment upon the world, and when he does it, he does it right and he does it justly and he does it as it should be done. Thus he holds everything in his hands, particularly his messengers. And it says there, out of his mouth comes a two-edged sword. Verse 16, that he had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining at its strength. That out of his mouth comes a sword on both edges that always cuts, it never grows dull. That he wields judgment with the very word of his mouth. That that which was able to create is also that which is able to dissolve. That which is able to extend grace is also that which is able to extend the purest of judgments with the very word of His mouth. It comes with power and it comes with strength. You can't restrain it of all the things that we have caged up in our world. All the animals, all the, um, all the creatures of the world, the ocean has never been caged. You may be able to shield yourselves for, from things for a time, but ultimately, John knows that it cannot hide from him. And that his strength cannot stand against him. Um, this is a glorious depiction of the king. It's a jaw dropper. If John were to write a song, it wouldn't be about his boyfriend or his BFF or his homeboy. It would be about a king who's worthy to be praised, who within him has all purity and all holiness and all loveliness and a beauty that is joyful and awe-striking, but at the same time terrifying. Thus, that whenever you read the Scriptures, when men come into contact with it, um, while they're praising Him, they're praising Him with their lips to the ground. Verse 17 and 18, you see the glory of His presence and what it does to a man. John 13, 23, you don't need to turn there, but John 13, 23, I'll just draw your attention in your mind um, to, to John. The very man who's writing this passage of Scripture here, um, in John thirteen twenty three, you read this word. John was probably the most intimate disciple of our Lord and Savior in his humanity, 
1323, you read these words. Now there was one leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples of whom Jesus loved. You know, a study of the, the book of John, when John refers to himself, he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. He doesn't take a name. But there you see in the reclining nature and just the casual nature that John leans upon his breast. How wonderful that must have been. But the casual leaning on Jesus has now ended. He falls like a dead man, it says in verse number 17. And when I saw him, all that, when I saw that, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. That with the glory of Christ comes a massive humbling effect. That when you see the glory, when you see the, the, the true nature of God Himself in Christ, it has a massive humbling effect. You say, that seems a little strange, a man fall on their face. I've not seen anything like that. Maybe that's because men no longer have met, met, recently met with God. Though the strange thing is, is to Scripture, to think that the risen Christ is someone casual. You know, a best friend forever. This and that. The risen glorified Christ necroses people is what the word there. It literally comes from the word we get our word necrotic from. That's where death comes from. The decease. That's the natural scriptural response. That's why Isaiah sees the Lord and he says, Woe is me, and he falls upon his face. He internally reflects upon his own sinful nature and he says, I'm not worthy of this. I can't praise you. They can't even praise you. They can't give you what they, you deserve in some sense. How can I give you what you deserve? If they, if they can't approach you, how can I approach you? Elijah in 1 Kings 19.13, after that great mountaintop experience and God displaying His character and His nature and bringing, raining fire down upon the pagans, in, in chapter 19, you find Him saying this, so it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing, Elijah? I can't even look at him. Daniel chapter 10 and verse 8 and 9 says, Therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me. For my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Matthew chapter 28, angels came to the tomb and it says that, quote, His countenance was like lightning and His clothing as white as snow and the guards shook for fear of Him and became like dead men. That the appropriate response of the Christian to the very glories and presence of Christ and its fullness, if God so dis determines to be gracious to us in showing Himself is, is humility. Oh God, that you would span the gap and visit me. But at the same time, there's an encouragement. He places his right hand. Did you catch that? With all of that, the very one whose eyes burn with judgment, the very one whose head is as pure as white, who's, who's pure as furnished, burnished brass, um, who is as strong as the sound of many waters, whose word is like a, a, a two-edged sword um, coming out of his mouth, and his judgments are right and his judgments are pure. Um, any man would fall dead before him, but this suffering Savior, this risen Christ comes and, and instead of doing what 
You may think I was getting it. He would do. He doesn't. He lays his right hand on me. The hand of power, the hand of strength, the hand of judgment, the hand in which he could have taken it and just sawn me in half and obliterated me like the old heavens and the old earth one day will be. And he could have, but he does not. He says to me, do not be afraid. He identifies with them and he sympathizes with them. Like we do not have a great high priest is what he's, he's, he's exemplifying here. Do not sympathize with our weaknesses. It's in all points tempted like we are yet without sin. Because of the death, the burial, and the resurrection, we need not fear death and hell. Why? Because it says later that I am He who lives and He who is dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. John, write these things. John, take this to the churches. All seven of them. Some of them are in sin. Take it anyway. You know, Some of them are being persecuted. They need it. Take it. They need to know that I'm there. They need to know who I am. They need to know that I'm holding those pastors in their hand, in, in my hand, and no one will take them out of it. They need, but at the same time, they need to know who I am. They need to know that sin is not to be trifled with. That false doctrine and error cannot be substantiated within the church. They need to know who I am so that they, they, they can receive my comfort, but they also need to know who that I am so that they can receive my rebuke and chastisement. They need to know who I am so that they can be like me. They need to behold my glory so that they can be changed and transformed into that glory. And there is no church above this. There is no man so righteous that he cannot be further and more gloriously changed in the presence of Christ. That's what we're talking about. That's what we mean. Can I take you to Matthew chapter 17 and show you something? This is the parallel account of the transfiguration. Verse 1 you read, And after six days Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. The face shone like the sun. And his clothes became as white as light, and behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here if you wish. Let us make your three tabernacles for you. One for Moses, one for Elijah. Verse 5, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and suddenly a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Fear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. Does that sound familiar? When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only that this is the savior the one who is to be that we are to be awestruck and terrified at and in his very presence we are to fall because of the purity and the nature and the gap between us is the very same savior who comes alongside those who will humble themselves under the mighty hand of god and he reaches low and he takes the hand of strength and he makes it a hand of comfort and he says rise and live rise do not be afraid your fear is unwarranted as long as you're in Christ, as long as you're in me. In me. And maybe that's the sermon. Maybe that's it. I want to talk to you about Elijah and Moses. But maybe we shouldn't. I want to talk to you about the restoration of all things. Maybe we should.
Maybe we should. Or maybe we should just sit in glory in the presence of Christ this morning and His Word being preached. And I'm talking about me as well. The transfigured Christ reveals something of His glory to us. Something of His glory. You say, what is it? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. Other than to use childlike words to tell you what He's accomplished on my behalf. Other than it's beautiful. Have you ever met with Christ? Have you ever walked away burned at the face because you were in the presence of Him? A lasting effect, like the, the glory of Moses coming down, not of your own, but because you've been with the Savior. You have no glory in and of yourself that is anything to be spoken of, but everything to be destroyed. And that's why He commands you to take up your cross and follow Him and to mortify. What effect does it, the glory have on the believer? Again, Isaiah 6 and verse number 8, Who will go for me? Whom will I send? Who will bear the marks of God? Who will be the lights? And this is more than just being the light of sharing the gospel. We need to do that. We need to disciple the nations. We need to put feet to our theology. I'm just afraid that our theology is nothing more than on many days an academic um, exercise in which we think will please the Father. But when you're in the presence of God, um, you humble yourself and you absorb the very glory of Christ and you're changed from one glory to another glory. You're transformed and changed into something that you were not. So if, if the presence, if, if, if our meetings and our gatherings and, and your, your devotions with, with, with God yourselves don't accomplish that, some days I wonder what I'm doing. The transfigured Christ reveals to us a great cost of His death. Number two. It reveals something of His glory, His character, His nature, which should ultimately absorb in us and change. And it reveals something of His great cost. Like Revelation 1, that's, that's a, Matthew 17, Luke chapter 9, um, Mark chapter 9. That's who they killed. That's who they bound. King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's who they covered their face and played games and beat, beat him. That's who they ripped his skin apart. That's who they laid upon him a cross. That's who they nailed through the hands. And that's who they nailed through the feet. The very King of kings and the Lord of lords. He who is blessed and only sovereign. Um, he alone who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. Um, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Though he was in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he emptied himself in the form of a servant. And he became like men, like to die for men. That's who they killed. That's whom we celebrate this morning. That's Him, the Son of Man, the Old Testament fulfillment of, of, of the One who would come and restore all things. That's what He goes on into Mark chapter number 9. And they ask the question about Elijah, maybe because Elijah's on the mount. And they say, well, the, the scribes say that Elijah, when He comes, He'll restore all things. And maybe they're thinking, why hasn't the kingdom come yet? Why isn't it here, Jesus? Will you tell us in Mark chapter number 9 why Elijah is up there, but it's, the restoration hasn't come yet? 
Because they can't get it through their thick brains that glory must always come after suffering. And he tells them that Elijah did come. And in Matthew chapter 17, it tells us that, 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 that after he talks to them, they understood that it was John the Baptist. And they did with them what they pleased, what they wished is what it says. And in some sense, he's telling them that the same they'll do to me and the same they'll do to you. That if you want glory and you want the glory of Christ, that sometimes it comes in the fellowship of suffering. That the transfigured Christ reveals to us the great cost of His death. It was God who was on trial. And how dare them? How dare us? How dare we? He who has flames of eyes like the flames of fire. He who has feet like burnished brass. He who has a hair like white as wool. He who is pure and holy. He who is loving and gracious. He who, when... If given the opportunity, we would take the crown off of his head, leans, kneels down, and touches us. That's who they kill. Number three, as believers, we look towards Resurrection Sunday. We look towards Resurrection Day. We study the transfiguration and we see the glory of Christ. And it gives us a small glimpse into what we will see one day. And on that grand and glorious day, we will be like Him. Philippians chapter 3, verse number 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which he is able to even subdue all things to himself. Psalm 110. He's putting all the enemies under his footstool. So you can take it to the bank that you have a citizenship which is not on earth but is in heaven. And that one day when you see him, you will see him as he is and you will be like him. You will be just like him. That we have a great hope because we have a living and a resurrected Savior. And just as His glory came through suffering, our glory most days will come as well. And that is a great hope. Because life is hard. Family's hard. Work is hard. Church is hard. Community is hard. The nation is hard. The world is hard. Because there is one in it who's the prince and power of the air, but then there's another here. And I look at him every single morning. And wonder when. And I come back to Philippians 3 and I go back to Mark chapter 9 and I look all throughout the scriptures day in and day out and He gives me hope. He gives me hope that this will end. He gives me hope that I will be alive not only then but now. Romans chapter number 6. Um, you read these words. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism, and that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified in with Him, and that the body of sin might be done away with. And then he goes on later to say that if that's the case, then likewise, verse 11, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. 
but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That our hope is not only a future hope, but a present hope. That the kingdom was inaugurated, although not fully consummated in the future. That even though the second coming has not been established in its fullness, the first coming has sufficiently secured everything that you need for hope and life of godliness. Therefore, grip the heavenly promises today, even though they are not heavenly experienced just yet. What I'm not arguing for is for us to walk around with our heads hung down because life is hard. Jesus died for it. Jesus lives for it. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father, um, ruling and reigning in heaven to subdue all of those enemies. Why? So that you can now live. And that glory that you have absorbed is a glory that, that shines to a lost and a dying world. That because He lives, we live. That's true. Like that's theological. That's biblical. That comes out of the very mouth of God Himself. And He commands all of us today to believe it. Are you living like that? Are you living like that? Whom shall go for me? Whom shall I send? Mission Sunday. Let's go. Andrew. Do you know what He's asking of you? Because it should scare you to death. But at the same time, as you're on the floor worshiping Him, He will without a doubt come. Offer you His hand. You'll find comfort and grace. And that glory will be without a doubt more evident than any program, any plan, anything that we can constitute in our own minds to try to reach this world with the gospel. And listen, it needs to be reached. There's no doubt. Jesus Christ died for the nations. He will secure the nations. And the presence of Christ in the midst of the church should be the primary tool of which He receives the nations. Um, amen. Number four, unbelievers. I look around and I see all familiar faces this morning. Praise the Lord. But maybe you're here and you've been with us for some time and I can't see your heart. But He can. Revelation 1, He can. He can. And know this morning that He is a God who dwells in unapproachable light. That He is a consuming fire. That He is holy and that He is righteous and that He is just and we cannot by our own merit stand in His presence. That we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Listen, God is a God of love but it is a love that is not at odds with His righteousness. And that's the glory of this day. That's the glory of every day in Christ. That the very character and nature of God was in its fullest summation. In my humble assessment, um, the, one of the fullest, if not the fullest, display of the summation of God's glory and character as love was not sacrificed nor justice. But justice met, righteousness met, grace and love and mercy. And that is available today to all who will believe. That He is the way, that He is the truth, and that He is the life, and no man comes to the Father but by Him. And that there is no other way to climb up through the celestial gates. It's narrow. Come unto Him, all you that labor and are heavy laden. And Jesus says, quote, I will give you rest. That there is peace today to be found in Christ. And that if you will repent and turn from yourself and your sins deny yourself and take up your cross and believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He will save you. He will save you. 
You say, I don't, you don't know who I am. You don't know who I am. You don't know who we all are. Come to Revelation chapter 1 and you read what we all are. And you go to Romans chapter 3, you go to Isaiah, you go to Genesis, all the way to Revelation, and you read who we all are, friends. Don't, d- d- don't denunciate or minimize, or minimize the, 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 the power and the character of God. There is none in whom He cannot save. There is none in whom His arm is shortened. There is none in whom um, is so dark that His light cannot penetrate. There is none in whom that He will turn away if they will humble themselves today, fall upon their faces in their inner men and come to Christ because He is Revelation chapter 1, Mark chapter 9 and the entirety of the Word of God. If His Word is speaking to you today, I beg you, implore you, command you on the authority of Christ to turn to Him and live as the, uh, the, the very text that brought Charles Adam Spurgeon, I repeat that to you today, to Christ Himself, look and live. It's that, that simple. Yet, all that hard. <laughs> because it, it means you have to, to give it all away. But at the same time, you gain the whole world. It's hard. But it's good. It's terrifying some days but it's joy unspeakable and full of glory to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So if that's you today, I beg you to come. We'll be here till midnight if you want to talk about the Word of God and the Bible. If God is convicting your heart and leaning you towards that, do not leave here unsaved today. And I meant to get more into the book of Mark and more of that passage, but I think we've said what needs to be said. Let us pray that God takes it to the depths of our heart. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the glory of Christ. Father, there's a sense in which I don't even know what that means. And there is a sense in which without it, I know I could have never came to you. Father, your son... (laughs) so magnificent. He's so gracious. He's so loving. He's so terrifying. But he's mine. He's mine. A great warrior. And on many days, fights for me, Father, in an eternal battle and wins the victory, not only then, but now. And on other days, he comes as a tender father or a mother who bends down and touches me. comforts me in ways that I'll never know. Father, on many days, He just strengthens my heart and soul. He intercedes for me. I know I don't even know what to pray. And I know He's praying for me. Father, I pray that um, these folks that sit before me, these men and women and children, know that. Father, I pray that they've seen the risen Christ. Father, I pray that they would not walk away from this uh, gathering together today thinking that Christ, Father, was a mere human figure, a good guy, a rabbi, a great teacher. Father, who, or maybe just a, a bedtime story. But they know and understand the very reality of Christ. They've seen Him in all of His glory, if not in the presence of this church, Father, and in the presence of others. Father, through the preaching of the Word of God, I pray that He was publicly displayed 
in a faithful manner, Father, through our prayers. I pray that he was ministered to the saints. I pray, Lord, um, just through our fellowship and gathering together that Christ was made known, Father, and that you'll use it to take these folks, these people, your precious bride from one glory to another as we just think on him. Father, I pray that I've exalted Christ today. And there's a sense in which I know I could never do enough. And that's exactly why you came. So I praise you for that, Father. That in falling short, we don't battle for the love of God. It's been experienced and committed to us, committed to us in an eternal way. That today we're not, um, as Christians, battling for the love. It's there. But just help us to serve out of gratitude. Help us not today to question the love of God. I mean, for believers, His love is overly manifest and exemplified in His Son. May that be evident today. And may out of a gratitude of heart and a terrifying encounter, but also a humbling experience and a comforting Savior, may we take the gospel to the ends of the age, to the ends of this earth. And may your Son receive the bride whom He's covenanted with, whom He died for, and whom He deserves. Father, it's been too long since we've seen a baby born into the family of God, and I'm not talking about physical infants. We've got plenty of those. We need more than that. Father, your bride is out there. Would you aid us to go? Would you help us to be faithful? Would we appropriate, Father, and assume the very character and nature of God on your behalf? Father, would you make us different for your sake and not our own? Father, would you make your presence known among Kingsport, Bristol, and Johnson City because we were here, because you are present among us? And hold us in your hands. Father, would you give us a greater and deeper desire for the lost? Father, would we agonize with Jesus himself and the Apostle Paul, Father, um, as they agonized over those who were closest to them? Father, have we shed any tears on their behalf? I'm afraid to say no. But at the same time, that may be the reality. Father, Help us in this area. Make us more like your son. Father, give us mission, Father. Give us direction. Give us clarity. And give us the unction, the power, and the strength to do it, Father. Um, help your spirit, Father. Our age your spirit to come alongside us, Father, and enable us in all those areas where we're deficient. God, we need you, and we need men. Father, I need to be more of a man of God. Would you help me? Would you help me to be the example to other men, Father? Would you put other men that are examples to us? I, and I know they're here. I praise God for that. But God, would you just continue to show your glory to us, Father, through the faithfulness of the saints that we might be changed into glory, into another stage of glory. Father, I trust that that's what we need in this church. We have been stagnant. And we need to move forward, Father. So show us yourself. Humble us, Father. Uh, but don't leave your hand too far away of comfort because... If not, Father, we will die without you and in your presence. We love and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.